Mission Log Supplemental. Nerds and Nerd Royalty. Talk Trek. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. We call this a supplemental, but today's show is not just any old supplemental mission log. Sometimes we're visited by fans, other times by Trek celebrities, but today we are in the presence of royalty. Kayla LaFrance is the winner of the second season of King of the Nerds on TBS. She ascended the throne of games. I love that. And it's kind of a cool-looking throne, too. It is. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not bad. Uh, and she says that a lot of her nerddom uh, comes straight from Star Trek. And today, with Kayla, we welcome Curtis Armstrong. He is the host of King of the Nerds, though you may also know him from the Revenge of the Nerds movies. And, of course, Moonlighting, that fabulous TV show. Uh, the point is, they're both huge Star Trek fans, and we thought it would be fun to nerd out with them a little before we launch into the movies. Now, we'll pick up the conversation where Curtis is talking about his love of Sherlock Holmes and how that fandom parallels Star Trek fandom. And uh, this is a thread that you'll find running all the way through today's chat. I enjoy them. I mean, I always go out and see the new movies. Um, uh, I... I only started watching Voyager really recently, fairly recently. Um, and, uh, you know, some of that had to do with Kayla, um, <laughs> frankly, because, you know, we were with her for six weeks or whatever it was on, on um, King of the Nerds. And you can't be with Kayla for six minutes without some Voyager reference coming up. And, you know, when I told her very proudly that I was uh, an original series uh, Trek fan, mm-hmm. um, you know, she was very pleased, but in kind of a slightly patronizing way, of, <laughs> of, you know, saying, well, that's nice. That's nice that you do. It's like, a, it's like when you meet a Sherlock Holmes, somebody who claims to be a Sherlock Holmes fan, and then all he talks about are the Basil Rathbone movies. Or the, or the Jeremy Brett series. And you go, well, no, that's good. That's good that you like those. Now you should try reading the books. And right. and so, you know, that was how that got started. And actually, it, well, to answer your question, the what I think about these, I think that the reason that these two fandoms show no sign of 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 wearing out and appear to have inexhaustible wells of of creativity um i think it's because not only the characters are so compelling uh and so easy for some it's deceptive because it's not an easy thing to create characters that so many people relate to but it is astonishing even in the early season in in the early show those characters come to life instantly even though they were still evolving they come to life instantly and uh the same is true with the sherlock holmes stories that there are there are characters that that are compelling and involving and uh 
surprise you and uh, and so on. But but even more important than the characters in both Star Trek and uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories is there is a world invoked. There's a world or a universe. I mean, the 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 this sort of Victorian. Uh, late Victorian Edwardian period that the home stories takes place it take place in most of them uh, you know is probably not really the Victorian period but it's for us close enough I mean it's written in it mm-hmm. so obviously there's a lot of, of reality to to the world as it's depicted but what you don't see about the the period is is, is also interesting. I mean, there are things about the big, so it it becomes for Sherlockians, it becomes, you know, the, you know, the brandy and soda at Baker Street and the pipe after breakfast and jumping into the cab and rattling off down the cobblestone streets and the fog and the blah, 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 you know, all those things, which are very, uh, you know, memorable and, and, and nostalgic, um, which is a trick when you've not actually lived in the period to be nostalgic for it but in a way with star trek it's the same thing we are nostalgic if it's possible for a period that hasn't occurred yet Mm. uh because star trek from the very get-go made that world so real for us that it was just I, i you you basically didn't question it and so, you know, those are the two. Those are the two reasons: is the the, the characters which are so well drawn, and the worlds which are perfect. So, Kayla, you sort of, <laughs> if if you think his interest in the original series was quaint, um, <laughs> I don't know if that's fair to say. I mean, have you sort of come back to uh, talk to me about your track fandom? I mean, starting, I guess, starting with the original series, or do you start with Voyager and just, and then everything else sort of centers around that? What would you say is your center as far as, uh, as far as your Star Trek fandom goes? I started pretty young with Trek. Uh, if you ask my parents, they'll tell you I was probably about two years old when I first started watching it. I would always turn Barney off and turn on Star Trek. So that would have been about Jean-Luc Picard um, and also a lot of Captain Kirk. I had all the original movies and stuff, and I remember being like five years old, Rathacon scared the crap out of me, but I was too afraid to tell my parents because if I told them, they wouldn't let me watch it anymore. <laughs> so, um, I started with Kirk. I started with Picard. I was, you know, a little kid, just envious of Wesley being on his starship, and uh, I remember when Deep Space Nine came out, and then when Voyager came out, I was nine, and to see... A female captain just, it really captured my imagination even more so. But for me, I was always into engineering. I was always into exploration and science. And so Star Trek always offered me this realm of possibility that was just so new and so different from what you see just living on a farm and living around where I grew up that I was just always so fascinated with that, that there could be other species out there and that you could travel amongst the stars and so that's what star trek really offered me it was this foundation that i wanted to build into science and engineering because i was so captivated by what i was seeing on star trek and they're so true to a lot of the science when you see them at a mintaka 
camp, Mintaka is an actual star in the belt of Orion. So they're using real names from stars. The Dyson Sphere is a real scientific um, paper that was written years before it even showed up on Star Trek. And so it's really a good way. It used to be a good way to really get into sciences and stuff. And that's that was where it happened for me is just the science and the exploration and that desire to be a part of that. So, Kayla, you've kind of done what uh, a lot of people who are Star Trek fans and then go into the sciences have done. They, they've had this journey where they, they watched this show, they got inspired by it. And now, what is your end goal? I mean, you, you, I know that you are an advocate for going to Mars. I know that uh, space exploration and uh, engineering are kind of your passions. But where do you want to take this? What do, what do you want to do with that? My ultimate goal is Mars. Um, I want to work mission control as a flight director for the first manned missions to Mars. Uh, there would be the desire to be an astronaut on that manned mission to Mars, of course. But that's uh, a very slim field of people that will get selected for that. So if I can't walk on Mars, I would love to be the person telling those guys what to do. So I want to work <laughs> mission control. Curtis, I, I want to ask you, uh, I had heard that you attended your first Star Trek convention when they were pretty young, when, when they, you know, yeah. when, when conventions were pretty early. We're talking like 1973 Detroit. Yeah, I had been overseas when when uh, I, in the 60s and I'd come back in in uh, 67. And uh, so I came back and I, I remember the moment of walking into my neighbor's house and he had a color television, which I didn't. And, um, he was watching an episode of star Trek, which I'd never even heard of. Uh, and I remember just stopping and not even being, I I was instantly absorbed. And I remember asking him, what is this? And he said, Oh, it's star Trek. And I was absolutely hooked from that moment. I even remember the episode. It was um, Who Mourns for Adonis. Oh, damn right you were hooked. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and it was just so, so interesting. But it's because I, my, my uh, feeling about how I got involved with Star Trek is different from Kayla's because, you know, hers is actually based in something. Mine was just based in... I loved science fiction, horror, classic horror and science fiction. And I had found a science fiction show that really gave me something to think about. It, you know, spoke to issues that were really important in the 60s at the time. And as the decade, you know, continued, uh, the, you know, the the kinds of issues and questions that, that were brought up by Star Trek frequently were, you know, obviously very you know connected to what was what was going on and in retrospect even after the show ended uh uh you know you you look back on it and it it can be a a sort of a a primer of of uh what was you know what was happening in america at the time in a lot of ways and it's one of the things that i think keeps the original series fresh even though you know there are elements of it obviously which which don't age that well um nevertheless there is that so i had been um you know i had started with the series then i started buying all the books 
whenever I could find them, the James Blish books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had all of those. And I bought the book about the making of Star Trek, uh, right. which was a really uh, that was intriguing for me because it was the first time I, I got a sort of behind the scenes look at uh, at, you know, what puts it makes a television. You don't think about what makes a television show work. Uh, and that was the first introduction to it. And the first indication that I had about what science was in the mix, how they used science, real science in the mix and so on. And then uh, uh, time goes by. And in 73, I was attending uh, uh, the Academy of Dramatic Arts, which was in Michigan there, a very good two-year school for, for stage actors. It was a classical training and that was what I was doing, and I was doing it with the with the view of being a, a stage actor, not movies or TV. And I heard that there was something called a Star Trek convention. I think they said it was a Star Trek convention that was happening in Detroit. And I was so excited. And I was I was dating a girl at the time at college. And she and I were uh, both Star Trek fans, um, although I don't remember it being on at the time. But uh, but we were both Star Trek fans, so you know we we were dating, and it was it was fine. But the the, the relationship hadn't actually gone where I was hoping it was going to go, <clears throat> meaning it, it, it had not been <laughs> consummated yet. And I was thinking, well, I'm going to go to this Star Trek convention. And I try, you know, she couldn't go. She had classes or some damn thing. And so I went down to it and it was so interesting because not having anything to compare it to, this Star Trek convention was in three rooms. Um, And I don't mean, you know, huge rooms like now. I mean, three meeting rooms in this (laughs) hotel. Um, where you would very comfortably sit people for a presentation about something, but, you know, lecture rooms almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of them was uh, a room which had this really loud, uh, like 16 millimeter camera setup, a projector setup. And all day they were showing episodes of Star Trek on this thing. And... Then there was a room, which was, I guess, the hawker's room, but there was barely anything to hawk at the time. Uh, What they had mainly were pictures and posters, which you could buy, and then you could go into the next room, which is where the cast was. And the cast at the time was was James Dune, George Takei, and uh, Walter Koenig. And they were there. But the thing that amazed, I mean, it was amazing enough that I was actually going to meet them. But what was more amazing was that you walk into a room and there was no one there. I mean, there was like five (laughs) people, you know, and there was no line. It was like people were, you know, some people were talking to to Kay and some people were talking to James and some were talking to Walter. When I walk in, I remember Walter was angry about something. He, I, I think it was, if I know anything about actors, it was the turnout, which was <laughs> you know, not much. 
And I remember seeing him with his arms crossed and talking, you know, sort of frowning and talking to this guy under his breath and then sort of stalking out of the room. And he I, I think he came back later because I wound up getting his signature. But George and and James were there and people were just sort of hanging out and talking to them. They would sit behind the table and you would sit sort of leaning against the table and you could talk about anything because there was no line. <laughs> and uh, so I got a poster with everyone on it, you know, all of the stars of that original series. And then I had the three of them sign it, which I was then going to take back to Jenny, the girl that I was dating. And I hoped this would turn the, you know, trick and I would finally. <laughs> no, uh, clearly. And... Yeah. Um, she wound up breaking up with me, but she kept a poster. Oh. But what I got out of it was I got to meet Scotty and and Sulu and Chekhov. And that was enough. Wow. That, have you been to a convention since then? I was at one after that. Uh, I think it was in L.A., I think. Um, and, of course, but, I mean, by that time it was, you know, it was massive and and I mean cool. It, it was very cool, and it gets into the whole the whole nerd thing of realizing that in the late sixties and early seventies, how little there was for people, you know, fandoms to be able to just to get together, let alone actually meet people who were, uh, you know, involved in the show. The idea was almost incomprehensible that you could just walk into a room and there they would be so you know it was being at that early star trek convention was was enlightening from that perspective but then you know you see where it's gone and you 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 can appreciate how wonderful it is that from that you know little acorn this mighty oak has sprung up and there's so much access and so many ways in which people can share their passions for these things um it's really great what about you kayla do you actually have you have you been to any of the conventions do you go to the, any, any of the conventions are you going to be in vegas this july you know little questions um i do go to conventions let's see dragon con is my main convention and there is a trek track that is ran by uh, garrett wong who is never heard of him <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> so I go to that one and that's where I've met most of the characters that I've met or actors um, and I also go to some creation events when they're in the cities that I'm in but they don't frequent Nashville or Spokane very often so I have not been to a lot of the creation events and uh, Las Vegas is a dream of mine one day I'll make it down there um, I have to ask both of you because, well, Curtis, specifically, you said that that first convention was in 73, and that was the year that the uh, the animated series launched, September of 73. And Kayla, I know that you've been following along Mission Log with mm -hmm. us, so uh, I know that you have a, a working knowledge in the animated series. Was that the first time you had been exposed to it? Uh, no, I watched it... Probably a couple years ago when uh, I got the DVDs. Okay. But I, I'd seen it a few times before Mission Log started to cover it. And Curtis, how about yourself? Had you watched that show in the original? No, um, I, you know, part of, the, part of the problem for me was once I left home, 
uh, I didn't have a television. Mm. And so uh, for me, uh, anything that happened in the 70s until about 76 uh, was the next time I had a television. So I basically couldn't see anything. Um, And also, you know, I was of an age at that point already where I would never have watched an animated version of Star Trek. One of one of my one of my problems when it comes to fandom is that I get into things and then I tend to have a problem stretching out. You know, I, I have a I have a problem evolving with the fandom which I always am trying to get better about, but it's, it's hard sometimes. So, you know, when next generation came along, I sort of thought, well, okay, fine. But I was not about to watch it. (laughs) No. Um, and eventually I did start watching next generation, but then the, you know, the other ones I did not watch until, um, until recently with, with Voyager. Um, you know, and I still don't, I could never even begin to, to present myself as being, uh, you know, even a fan of the later shows when I realize what goes into being a real fan of those shows. I I think then I, I would be interested to know for, for the both of you. Um, I mean, Curtis, we know that your initiation was the original series. Mm -hmm. Kayla, you, you kind of sort of the original series, but Voyager is really your your Star Trek. How did you both take to the the new new reboot, where you've got J.J. Abrams' spin on things from two thousand nine? Uh, Curtis, was this something that you avoided as well because of your sort no, of the no, way no, that no, you take I, on your I, fandom? Or no, no, no. I, you know, there's a difference for me between between the movies uh, and the series. Like, mm-hmm. and this was this goes back to even the original movies with the original cast. Um, that I would go to see those. I would see those, I, I guess in the case of, of, uh, of uh, the second one, Wrath of Khan, I, I might have seen that two or three times. I really loved that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked the first one. Everyone else hated it, but I thought the first one was great. As long as they were going on, I would go, uh, I would go out and see them. The, the difficulty is with the series is just getting – I've never been somebody who can really work my schedule around a TV series. It's very hard for me to do that. So uh, you know, when it comes to getting involved with them, unless I sit down and binge watch uh, a series, uh, you know, it's hard for me to keep up. So uh, I forgot what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to get your impressions, yours and Kayla's, about oh, oh, the, 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 the new reboot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the the new reboot. Well, you know, it's like any, it's like anything else. I think that that when you have a this is the way I feel. It, it's like with Sherlock Holmes. With Sherlock Holmes, for me, the books are the core of my fandom. Mm-hmm. My my interaction with those stories, what I think about, how I feel when I read those stories, that's where that comes. Now, any interpretation of those stories, sometimes they'll be brilliant, sometimes they'll be terrible. It doesn't matter to me. Nothing is ever going to surpass that. Mm-hmm. So when I look at the new reboot and try to compare it to the original series or, or anything that I've seen on the other series, I, I don't even make a comparison. For me, Star Trek is the original series. Everything else, 
can be you know better better uh, better uh, 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 quality in the in the in the effects you know better set design better science maybe you know uh, uh, all of the things that you know people in the later series can can point at which is fine and I understand that but that's not what that's not what you know attracts me to it what you know my my core will always be that but i can still go out and enjoy that the new reboot uh, you mm -hmm. know i i look at the guys that they have and the women that they have who they've cast in those those roles and it's fun i go oh that's fun mm -hmm. i mean it's not star trek star <laughs> trek <laughs> right you know it's like it's like you know the 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 Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, the BBC series of Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. is absolutely amazing. It's uh, I love every second of it. I I it's one of my favorite things in the world. It's not really Sherlock Holmes <laughs> because those are in books, right, you know? right? So that's where I am on that. How about yourself, Kayla? Ah, how do I be nice? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of them. And, uh, when it, from my point of view, it comes down to, uh, there's a lot of science and accuracy and I'm like, red matter. What is red matter? <laughs> and, um, starships under the ocean. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> and that, that really kind of threw, throws a wrench into it for me because to me, Star Trek is the science. It doesn't matter which, series it is, it's the techno babble, and Voyager's known for having a lot of techno babble. Mm -hmm. That's what I love. And all of a sudden now you just have a flashy lens flare full action film. And I get that that's trying to pull in the a new generation of Trek nerds. I get that it's kind of what Hollywood expects of a movie right now, but that's not my Star Trek. That's not what captivated me. It's not what inspired generations of engineers and nerds. So I, I've given it a chance. I've watched, I, you know, I watch them when they come out. I didn't leave the theater when the Spock con thing happened. <laughs> but it, it's just, it's not my forte. And uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, a lot of Sherlockians have the same view of the, of the Warner Brothers movies, the, the Robert Downey movies. You know, they'll say, well, this is not obviously it's not Sherlock Holmes. They they get very sniffy about it. And it's just, you know, it's a way of, you know, hopefully the best that they can say about something like that is, well, hopefully it'll draw more people in to the read the original books or to, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that that ever happens or very seldom happens. I, I don't think that the new um the new uh, uh, reboot of Star Trek is probably going to be any more successful in bringing in people to the Star Trek fandom. They will have their own Star Trek fandom, mm -hmm. but it's not going to make people say, I want to go back and look at that original series because they may not last five minutes watching the original series. <laughs> you know, you know, it's everybody has their own idea of what fandom, of wh where their fandom, you know, lies. And, you know, uh, you know, there there will be new Star Trek nerds for whom the new Star Trek reboot is that. And that's that's, you know, just as there are fans coming into the Robert Downey movies or the Benedict Cumberbatch series or the the CBS series and saying, I'm now a Sherlock Holmes fan. 
they're they are fans within the fandom, but whether they are actually part of what the larger issue is, like for example, what Kayla was just saying about about engineering and you know and faux science and that kind of thing. I mean that's that's really interesting because you know I didn't you know I watched the the uh, the starship coming out of the ocean and or the, the lake or whatever it was, and I said, oh, that's really cool. Uh, without ever thinking, you know, well, no, that's not really possible. And and one of the things that you love the most about Star Trek is the possible. Um, in addition to the improbable, uh, you also really love the possible and and the correct, you know, from from the standpoint that we that we know it. And so, so she's got a very good point. And I think that that's part of, I think it isn't just, you know, make an action movie out of it, although that's a big one. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 the thing in the most recent one with the, you know, with Benedict Cumberbatch actually, where, you know, that, that endless fight and chase and fight and chase and fight and chase. And it was just, it was it was breathtaking, but at the same time, you are sort of saying, "What are we watching?" <laughs> you know, and and uh, and I think that they, you know, I think that it's a a uh, uh, a tendency to to you know there there it may be left over from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, I no, I mean, okay, I know, but still, I, I what I'm thinking is that maybe what has happened here is that um, the idea of what Kayla finds so appealing about Star Trek originally, um, that what people are now doing is they don't care so much about that. It almost it almost reflects what happens what has happened in this country when it comes to space ex- exploration. That it becomes less important. What's really important is the fantasy. So when the starship comes out of the water, when things like that happen, and you have you know a character like the one that Benedict Cumberbatch plays in the most recent one, these are not things that have anything to do with the original. They have to do with you know doing something which is big and exploding and fast and exciting and all of those kinds of things. And you can see where, you know, the fantasy or the the creative Sherlock uh, uh, Star Trek is is maybe being overwhelmed a bit by the Star Wars mentality. I don't I don't know that I would say that it's the Star Wars mentality though. It's the difference between television and movies, right? I mean, what's the quote, John? You know it off the top of your head. What what is it that Gene Roddenberry used to say? We're going to try to entertain you and and maybe slip in an idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll we'll make you laugh, we'll entertain you, and every now and then slip in a heavy idea. Yeah, which is easier to do when you've got 22, 24 times a year to try it, right? Right. But then with the movies, you've got one shot every three years, and we're putting millions and millions and millions, hundreds of yeah. millions, literally, into this, so really deliver... And oddly enough, uh, you know, an examination of man's place in the universe doesn't deliver quite as well at $10 a ticket... As you well, know, yeah. spaceships crashing into each other. Well, but yeah, but I mean, the, the 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 you know the spaceships 
crashing into each other was exactly what I was thinking about when I was referring to the Star Wars influence. But, <laughs> yeah. but you're yeah. right. I mean, I, I think that that's true. I think that, that a lot of that – I think the whole idea of ideas in Star Trek films is something that is not really looked at anymore for the reasons that you state. I, I think that people uh, don't want ideas. Um, they don't want to have the kinds of things. I mean, some of the stuff in the original series of Star Trek, um, some of those big ideas that they were putting out were <clears throat> remarkably uh, forward-thinking and progressive ideas mm-hmm. for a show that you know sold itself on being you know wagon train in outer space or whatever it was that they mm-hmm. that Gene Roddenberry and Post had. Uh, pitched it mm-hmm. uh you know i mean you were looking on the one hand at basically a, a western in outer space with all that implies and at the same time you're putting out these ideas which are remarkable having to do with you know racial equality and gender equality and you know those kinds of things which were heavy but but it was also a decade in which that was okay you could do that you couldn't do it all the time but you could do that because everybody was going through those kinds of uh, – you were exposed to it every day. Now you're exposed to entertainment every day. I, I think what you're talking about is you know, the difference between movies you – know, the last 35 years of motion pictures versus a movie 50 or 60 years ago. You know, uh, um, the day the year stood still – is going right. to be different than everything that came after Star Wars, uh, and, and certainly today in the era of Michael Bay and you know the, these huge epic special effects showpieces. You know, well, that's, Star Trek. Yeah, that's a great that's a great uh, example. Actually, I was watching uh, the remake of of uh, Day the Earth Stood Still just the other day, mm. and. I could not get through it. <laughs> it here, was here. so yeah. ridiculous and so over the top. Yeah. And the first movie, the the original movie, was about ideas. That yeah. was huge about ideas, big ideas, you know? Yeah. And, you know, in the 50s, a lot of that kind of science fiction in the 50s came out of that idea of, the Cold War and the nuclear the nuclear threat and all you know all of those kinds of things, and they tended to um, they tended to be about that more than than some of the other social questions of the time, notably you know racial questions. Um, they didn't put a lot of that in those movies at the time because that was not acceptable. By the '60s, it had become acceptable enough. That, you know, you have the, the famous kiss on Star Trek, which, you know, supposedly caused such an, uh, an uproar at the time, you know. So every, every generation has what it accepts in its entertainment and what it won't accept. But I think that the pervasiveness of entertainment, in quotes, has made people in general less inclined to consider big ideas and more interested in big explosions. I've got I've got to do something that got me looked at as if I were crazy at last year's convention and and oh, no. take 30 seconds 
to defend Into Darkness. <laughs> that that whole movie, it seems to me, is built around the Kirk speech at the end. And Kirk's speech is shorthand, at least on Mission Log, and I assume in other parts of Star Trek, but or other Star Trek fandom or other Star Trek analysis, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, the Kirk speech is the part where Kirk stands up and says, hey, we're being dumb and we need to not be dumb. Otherwise, we're all going to die. I mean, and that, yeah. that's basically what the Kirk speech boils down to every time. And it was a great action movie. I mean, yes, it had problems like the ship under the ocean and all that. But that whole movie was leading up to the writers of that movie saying, wow, are we being stupid? And we don't get to go to the 23rd century if we don't knock it off. And so, and, and, right. and there's my 30 seconds. And, and, you know, forgive me, I felt like I had to do that. <laughs> along, along those lines, I have a question for Kayla that's not, that's not Star Trek specific. It feels to me as somebody who is not a scientist, like a weird time for science. I mean, on the one hand, you've got like, you've got Cosmos again. You've got a show like, uh, like, uh, you know, King of the Nerds, where somebody who is actually steeped in science can, can go and win. Um, you've got rock star scientists that are not quite as cool as the Jeff Goldblum character from Jurassic Park, but you know, they're, they're, they're getting close. And at the same time, you have people running for office on every level in this country saying that, you know, climate change is a myth. It's it's a hoax. It's a pretend thing. Um, a lot of people say that they don't actually believe that, but they're doing that to gain votes. But here's the thing. They're gaining votes by doing it. Um, I don't know if it's possible to say, you know, what's the state of science today? But I'm going to ask you to anyway, <laughs> as far as, as far as somebody who's in it. I mean, what, what does it look like to you at this point? You know, it's. I'm in an interesting position because I have all the education you can imagine, yet I've not been able to get hired, and it's been almost two years since I graduated. And uh, so I'm getting to start to have a very jaded view <laughs> of uh, the government and how they're funding or not funding science, um, just and how our country as a whole looks at science. Um, everything going on with the International Space Station, the war and the politics between America and Russia and the Crimea and all that going on. Like, it, it's it's kind of a mess right now. And, um, you, know, at, you know, in a way, I feel like I'm in the wrong generation. The good exploration was the 60s, but had I been born in the 60s, I would have been a secretary because I'm a girl. And uh, who knows? We're probably a good 30, 40 years before the economy is able to rebound and we are looking at science the way we should. And what it's going to take is another war of technology, basically. The, the space race was a world war of sorts, but it was one fought with ideas and technologies. It wasn't fought with weapons. And China's going to walk on the moon. And when they do, that's going to stir up the wasp nest. That is what's going to get America to be like, that's not right. We don't want that. We don't like that. And that's what it's going to take to get us to wake up and to start looking at science the way we need to again. And so I'm just biding my time and hoping it happens sooner rather than later. Do you think that, I, I guess, you know, we just had this conversation about how Star Trek was more focused on ideas and uh, perhaps that's part of the inspiration for people to have gone into fields of science and uh, intellectual pursuits. Um, and maybe our entertainment isn't, uh, isn't helping to reflect or inspire that anymore. Um, you know, maybe uh, 
maybe it's time then for Star Trek to come back in a different form that uh, back on TV, perhaps mm-hmm. that would uh, that would help to bring us around again. I don't know. If we go back and have a new Star Trek show, we need to not. The thing with Enterprise not doing so well, and I think also with the J.J. Abrams, is that Star Trek is about progression, but the last two segments of Trek fandom have not been progressive. They keep going back to the original, to the start, to a prequel. If we want to show the progression and show the future, we need to do what Next Generation did to the original series. Go and jump 75 years in the future from Voyager and then show what the new ideas are there. Show the new possibilities there, the new science, the new tech the new ideas and how a rebuilt federation from the Dominion war would be able to thrive and rebuild and grow. And, you know, it needs to be progressive again. And it hasn't been very progressive in the last couple of years. What do you call it? The next, next generation or, you know, Star (laughs) Trek, the generation after that. I mean, no, 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 this, this, this won't work better, better go, go back to the start. How about five years before? (laughs) There's enough creative people out there. I think they can figure out a name. I mean, Oh, you have a lot of faith. All right. You have, a lot of people talk about like doing a time ship relativity one from the Voyager episode where you have relativity. Oh, there's okay. a lot of options out there that they really could focus on. And uh, there's, there's options and there's choices and there's things they can do that would just really rock the world again and really show good science and good stories and good ideals, morals and the whole, the whole lot and start checking thrive again. You know, I know Worf, uh, Michael Dorn is trying to get a Klingon version of Star Trek going right now, which would be pretty cool. <laughs> but that might not be as progressive as just and going forward and seeing what we can do next and inspiring again. I, I think that it's difficult when you when you think in terms of, of the technology because, you know, on the one hand, in the 60s, technology was so in its infancy that anything they did was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as the seventies and on showed they, you know, in the first place, the technology showing technology had advanced, had advanced so much that after a while, the technology itself by itself doesn't re in the first place, it dates very quickly. And mm-hmm. in the second place, it's not what I think is making the idea of, of uh, of exploration so appealing and compelling. I think that has to do with uh, your stories. And because that's, the truth is that's really, the stories are what Star Trek, I think, always was about. And, you know, when it was working in short form, especially, um, you know, when they when they started making the features, they would, you know, sort of dip back into the short stories in a way uh, for for uh, for their uh, for their inspiration. But I think that when it comes to, you know, really getting people worked up and excited about it, as as important as the technology is and the effects are, it's it's stories is where that's always going to have to come from. And you know, actors who are appealing and and accessible. Um, you know, you can't, unfortunately, you can't undo a lot of the dumbing down that we've been subjected to. Um, on the other hand, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what you would, 
what you would do, how you would pitch such a thing, uh, you know, to a television network nowadays. Um, yeah, I think it would it would seem to be, if you excuse the expression, a no brainer. But it really uh, to do it properly, I think, would be uh, a real challenge, but one that I, I agree with Kayla, that there are people out there who are capable of delivering. Um, it's just persuading the, the powers that be that there's an audience for that. There's an audience for ideas. I, uh, I have to ask you both uh, a couple of questions related to Star Trek and King of the Nerds. Uh, first of all, George Takei, who has mm-hmm. been on uh, both seasons. Why is that man the ambassador of Star Trek now? Uh, I mean, what, what's the deal there? And second of all, um, I believe this last season, season two, a contestant who had neither seen Star Trek nor Star Wars. Um, yeah. What 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 sad part of that person's life is uh, is missing? You know? <laughs> but, uh, Kayla, do you want to respond about Jack? <laughs> and and do, did anybody call DCFS? Because really, that maybe that's where that should start. <laughs> um, yes, Jack had really no experience in a lot of pop culture of the nerd kingdom. Uh, he knows a lot about Magic the Gathering, which is a tabletop card game. Mm-hmm. Other than that, he, he's very scientific. He's extremely smart at, with mathematics and statistics. He does uh, bioengineering and stuff. Like In terms of science, like he scared and intimidated me because he's very intelligent in that. And uh, he just never really took the time to watch Star Trek or Star Wars. He didn't know Farscape or any of the sci-fi, any of the, the references – we would anybody would just do a nerd related pop culture reference and you just he would like, What's that? And it would just kill the conversation. <laughs> but he he's started to branch out and it's a lot easier to watch Star Wars. He's already watched all those movies since. But where do you start with Star Trek? You have if you watch like nonstop, I think it takes like twenty two days to go through every single episode of all five series and then the animated series and all the movies. It's a lot to handle and it's a lot to swallow. So it takes a little bit more time to get into Star Trek, but uh, he's trying. I've I've given him a list of episodes he needs to watch and key episodes. Okay. Did did you start with the original series, or how did you uh, how did you approach that list? Um, I gave him just kind of the big monumental um, episodes from like all the different series, and okay. it's like, well, whichever one that you like the best, we'll start with that series and go from there. Is kind of how I tackled it. So. I don't think he's finished it yet, but it, he's been busy with school, so maybe this summer. Okay. I'm, I'm glad that you have taken him under your wing. It <laughs> really is important, uh, I think, for the future of humanity. Um, and then George Takei, you, you, you had him on uh, both seasons of King yeah. of the Nerds. Yeah. Well, you know, George is – my favorite thing about, about George with King of the Nerds was he was on the top of our list in the first season we really wanted to get george mm-hmm. and part of the reason is because he is uh an activist he's he is very very uh um prominent in in all kinds of social issues basically you know having to do with with people who are on the on the outside of the culture uh, mm-hmm. as far as as a lot of people in this country consider it he's a very progressive guy 
Uh, and uh, there is a connection with nerds and that. I mean, you know, the the idea of nerds being being put down and, and and suppressed and I mean you can make a lot of connections which are sort of outside your question um, but there are a lot of questions having to do with racism and sexism and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, various issues you know financial inequality and so on well George is at the head of all of that stuff mm-hmm. and so apart from that being really funny and completely charming and very smart so we had him in our sights to begin with. And it was an interesting thing from a casting standpoint, because when we had our casting person go- reaching out to various people, um, especially the first season, of course, none of them knew the show. Mm-hmm. So there were people who said no flat out. Uh, there were people who said, oh, that sounds interesting, uh, but I'm working. But then the one person who said Something different was George. And George said in his response was, that sounds great. I would love to do it, but I need to know that you're not mocking nerds. Hmm. He said, if you're not, yeah. if you're mocking nerds, I'm, I, I can't do it. And our casting agent said to him, well, no, it's king of the nerds. It celebrates nerds. Mm-hmm why would we want to, you know, piss them off? And he said, I just know where they are. I know what they've been through. He said, I owe my career to nerds and I can't be part of anything that mocks them. So they got him on the phone with, with our executive producers and they talked to him and assured him that that was the case. And then when he came in, he was one of, uh, one of the the uh, judges for the cosplay episode that year, and he saw the light. And so when we called for the second year, he, obviously he was a favorite, and we really liked him. We called him for the second year to come in, uh, this time to actually be part of a challenge, because he came in as in the uh, in the uh, nerd off called saving George Takei. And uh, he came in instantly and because he knew at that point that we were on the up and up and we were pro nerd as opposed Mm -hmm. to being anti nerd. And by God, if we get a third season, we're going to ask him again. I don't know what it's going to be. We're (laughs) going to get him in there. But as long as we run, George Takei will will have a part on our show if he wants it. And I I guess you you didn't tell him uh, the part where you you killed the, the nerd at the end, right? (laughs) <laughs> no, we didn't tell. We, we, you know. Well, I, then it, one has to ask. I mean, he, here we are 30 years after a movie called Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. And now we've got a TV show, second season, hopefully a third season, King of the Nerds. Right. And, you know, a, a testament to the idea that in 1973, Curtis, you were at a, a, a Star Trek convention where there were five people in a room. And now you go to Vegas and there's 5,000 people there. Right. I, I, has the tide really turned that much? Have the nerds inherited the earth? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Well, that, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, do, do you even need a movie like Revenge of the Nerds anymore for, for this generation who have grown up on this stuff and, and it seemingly have an outlet for whatever it is 
that they well, again, want to pursue. You know, I guess I would I would say that there's always room for that mm. because I don't believe I guess unlike Kayla, certainly from a a social standpoint, from a political standpoint, I don't believe that that the nerds have necessarily inherited the earth, and I'm not as as optimistic about it as some people are. Mm-hmm. Um, we've inherited the earth from the uh, we. I shouldn't say we. They have in, in, inherited the earth, you know, from the standpoint of being uh, at the forefront of technology and advancements in technology and so on, which, as our society has changed, has become more and more and more important, more important than anything in some cases. Um, that, you know, our real issue as, as a people is, you know, whether we have the right eye touch or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um well, you know, the people who created all of those things were nerds, uh, and uh, now they're extremely rich nerds. Um, but I'm not sure that the advancements in technology have done anything for the other part of what what a show like Star Trek or a movie like Revenge of the Nerds offered, which has to do with, you know, looking at the world around us and the, the possibilities in the future and asking difficult questions and raising points that sometimes people, you know, would rather not hear about. You know, our our country is so polarized politically that basically nothing can get done. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why the idea of putting together a big budget movie with ideas, in quotes, mm-hmm. is so threatening. Because... If you proposed some of the ideas that the original Star Trek or, or even Next Generation Star Trek or the later ones proposed, half of your audience might walk out um, yeah. because they would be considered, you know, Marxist or, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, you know, this is the problem and why I think that it's I'm not sure that the nerds have inhabited the earth, uh, inherited the earth. What we have with, you know, we've been talking about I have been talking about. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds a lot the last few weeks because of the the DVD coming out and it's been 30 years. And one of the things that people forget is that, and it's easy to forget, that amidst the nose picking and the belching and the breasts and the and the you know uh, panty raids and and uh, you know everything else that that uh, Revenge of the Nerds is memorable for. We, we also were putting out ideas as well. It was also about racism and anti-Semitism, and it was intended to be. That was one of the things that, you know, I mean, when they have the burning nerd sign on the lawn in Revenge of the Nerds, uh, or someone's throwing rocks through the windows saying, nerds go home, or, you know, these kinds of things, they're, they're literally taken out of their, their dorm rooms, thrown through the windows, and sent to live in a gym. I mean, these were ideas that the writers and the director of Revenge of the Nerds were, they, they were, they were using metaphors very deliberately in that movie. Mm-hmm. If you were to redo Revenge of the Nerds now, you'd be so busy trying to outgross every other movie. And I mean, when I mean outgross, I don't necessarily mean <laughs> right. make more money. I mean, be grosser yeah. than the original movie was be more explicit, be more outrageous. That's all of the things that would go into making a Revenge of the Nerds movie now, whereas those ideas would be dismissed. 
because they would be thinking, you know, nobody wants to go into a movie theater and spend $10 or $12 or $24 to uh, have a progressive lecture. Well, it sounds like you've been reading the mail that we get from Mission Log. I mean, uh, we've been called uh, Marxist, socialist, conservative, liberal, uh, anything. It pretty much it shows that Star Trek is a Rorschach test for uh, whatever it is whatever that you, you bring feel. to it. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's exactly true. Yeah. I mean, and if you look at that original series, which I'm sorry, forgive me, it's the only one that I know well. So it's the only one I can refer to. But if you look at that original series, you know, depending on the episode, you just your your jaw drops with how <laughs> how, you know, paleolithic the thinking is. And then in the next episode, you look at it and it's progressive and remarkable, you know, with important statements and so on. You know, they they hit the mark more often than they missed it when it came to 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 the to the progressives statements um but you know at the same time they were they, it was wagon train in outer space and there's a different ethic involved when that's when you're doing that so now it's just when you consider how much more dramatically everything is polarized and how how much hate there is when it comes to these things um it makes it very difficult, I would think, for people who are, are approaching Star Trek with its reputation mm-hmm. to come up with a way of doing it that doesn't involve, you know, starships coming up from the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> well, in uh, 2027, John and I are starting our Moonlighting podcast, so <laughs> we'd love to have you back on for that, too, if you're, you know, if you're cool. Okay. You want to interview me now, because I don't know what my, my <laughs> like about uh, about moonlighting by that time <laughs> yeah, okay well, we'll try to get you back next week then and, and save that for 2027 yeah. okay hey we are grateful and we really want to thank curtis and kayla again for joining us today um if you out there listening would like to contact us please do if you'd like to say something about our episodes you can contact us on facebook skype and twitter in all three places and the handle is mission log pod or you can call us at 323-522-5641 you can also email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Next week, a look at the missing Star Trek. We welcome Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens to help us make sense of Star Trek Phase 2 before we go to the movies. Music